Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up a little later in the program, a big announcement today from the African American Cultural Heritage Action Fund. If you're not familiar with it, well, keep listening. It's a program of the National Trust for Historic Preservation, and it funds projects to preserve African American landmarks and support the longevity of African American historic sites. You'll hear how Georgia will benefit. And also, we'll tell you about the PAD initiative. We actually talked about this last year, but there have been some changes. The mission to reduce arrests of those in need of resources, such as substance abuse, homelessness, and mental health issues. Well, the program is now being extended, expanded, and you'll hear why in just a moment. Those conversations, all those conversations, on today's Closer Look. But first, this... U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy is issuing his first Surgeon General's advisory of his administration. Why? Well, Dr. Murthy says that's just way too much misinformation that's being shared through social media and that it's actually influencing folks not to get vaccinated. Here's what Dr. Murthy told NPR. COVID has really brought into sharp focus the full extent of damage that health misinformation is doing. In a press advisory, Dr. Murthy is warning the American public about dangers of health misinformation and what he says is prolonging the pandemic and putting lives at risk. If you're not sure, not sharing is actually often the prudent thing to do. The Surgeon General also wants tech and social media companies to do their part and take more responsibility to stop the online spread of health misinformation. In other news, an Atlanta federal appeals court has upheld a nationwide pandemic eviction moratorium put in place by the CDC last September. Now, the decision yesterday struck down several landlords' attempts to evict their tenants. The judges said the landlords who brought the suit failed to prove that they had suffered, quote, irreparable injury because of the eviction freeze. So there'll be more on this as we know. And finally, if you're heading to Charlotte, North Carolina from Atlanta, well, one day this could be a direct trip. One day, not tomorrow, but one day. The Federal Railroad Administration has crossed a milestone in the proposed Atlanta to Charlotte high-speed rail line. The U.S. Department of Transportation designated the corridor as a, quote, expansion priority. And after a study, the government had just selected its optimum route. Now, that path takes the rail through Athens, Swanee, and Doraville. However... And to no surprise, complete funding for the long-term rail line project has yet to be identified. So until then, continue to book a flight or just head north on I-85. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. 
you can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Last year, we told you about the Policing Alternatives and Diversion Initiative, or called PAD. Now, it's an initiative working with law enforcement to reduce arrests of those in need of resources, for example, mental health challenges, substance abuse, or homelessness. And it begins with a call, 311 instead of 911. And initially, the service was limited to certain zones in Atlanta. But that's changing. So let's welcome back to the program Moki Macias. She's the executive director of PAD and China Corker. She's a referral coordinator with PAD. Thank you both for taking the time. Thanks so much for having us, Rose. It's a pleasure to be here. Director Macias, let's revisit the origin story of the PAD program for folks that may not be familiar with it. Sure. So the PAD initiative came out of a community effort to find other ways to address concerns related to substance use, mental health, and in general, people's marginalization from services and resources that cause them to commit survival crimes, um, knowing that you know punishment and enforcement were actually not addressing the issues that people were really struggling with, and were not able to, in that, in that way, then really change the dynamic in the communities that were concerned with it. Um, so it came out of a campaign, um, Solutions Not Punishment Coalition was a grassroots dynamic organization, a collection of organizations, excuse me, um, that really brought the city and the county as well as institutional agency and community stakeholders together to say, you know, we think we could do something different in the city of Atlanta and Fulton County. We think that we could have an approach that while understanding the concerns the community may bring forward with these sorts of survival activities, we can actually respond better to address them. So that it really came out of an mm-hmm. effort of community members to do that. And we started actually working directly with the Atlanta Police Department. So we started with the understanding that the police department was actually the first responders to most of these concerns. Mm-hmm. And we needed to give them a different tool before building the alternatives that we're looking that we're currently doing. And how long ago was that? That was back in 2014. Um, there was a planning process for several years. We actually launched the program in 2017, mm-hmm. working closely with the Atlanta Police Department to accept diversions. And let me ask you this: so neither one of you can tackle this. Are there many variations of this program throughout the nation? Was there a program you all wanted to to use as a template or to emulate? Sure, I can speak to that as well. So it, the law enforcement assisted diversion program out in Seattle was really our model for the d- diversion work. What we have heard for years as we've done this diversion work in communities is people saying, hey, is, can we reach you directly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is there a way for us to receive assistance with some of these concerns without engaging the police department? And so we've been in those conversations over the last several years, as many communities across the country have been engaging in the same 
conversation, right? So we have been learning alongside many other cities over the last year or so um, to stand up these kinds of programs. There are certainly other cities that are providing alternate responses through their 911 call centers. Um, however, we're not aware of any other uh, cities, excuse me, that are using 311 in this particular way. And is there data to support how programs like PAD or, or something similar, how they're working and basically the effectiveness of them? Sure. So, you know, I think the best data to look at to see the need for another approach is the recidivism data mm-hmm. of the current system that we're in, right? Recognizing that when you have a recidivism rate of upwards of 80%, um, there is something wrong with our current approach, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's really nowhere, there's nowhere to go but up um, when there's a recognition across all the system stakeholders that continuing to arrest people over and over and over again for the same issue and jailing them is actually not effectively, you know, keeping them out of the system. So for us, you know, we recognize that any effort that we can make that gets people towards a more stable um, path, you know, increases mm-hmm. the resources that they have access to and the community connections that can help address their needs is a step in the right direction to move away from a recidivism rate like that. I would also say, you know, looking at the 911 calls and the reasons people are calling 911, we see that the vast majority of calls are actually for concerns that are not directly related to physical safety, mm-hmm. um, but often related to quality of life issues. So we see that as really good data to to guide the approach to say, you know, we need something that's different than an emergency response Mm -hmm. if people are calling the emergency line with non-emergency concerns. Jenna Corker, let me bring you to the conversation for our listeners. Let's go over some of those. What would be an example of some of the calls that you all have already been receiving? Yeah, so we receive, you know, various different calls, primarily from community members who, you know, walk to work or may own businesses and they say, you know, I see this person weekly or daily and they are, you know, experiencing extreme poverty Um, or people who may just be passing by and see someone in a situation that normally they would think like, who do I call? Um, Mm -hmm. And so Pat has been that person to call. Um, And we've, you know, kind of seen something different really every day, you know, because of course poverty doesn't really just have one shape or doesn't look the same. Um, And so we pretty much hear from, you know, pretty much, yeah, I I would say pretty much different types of people for sure. And initially the 301, the 311 service call was for specific zones or communities in Atlanta, but that's now changing. How did all this come about? Sure, I can speak to that. So when we started developing this process in partnership with the city of Atlanta last summer, you know, we received additional funding from the city of Atlanta to be able to expand citywide. And we wanted to make sure that it was done in a strategic way. Um, We started in zones that we, where we had already built community relationships, particularly zones five and six of Mm -hmm. the Atlanta Police Department geography, um, where we knew a lot of quality of life concerns resulted in police involvement. And so we started where we already worked um, and then started building relationships with other community members. We conducted a survey citywide. We conducted data analysis of of arrests and calls for service citywide and then held multiple community listening sessions and and working groups um, in order to really identify where was their community interest 
in this um, in this program or this service? And then where could we have the biggest impact in recruiting these types of calls away from police involvement um, when it was much more appropriate for community um, response team to respond to? So we are, as of June 21st of this year, we are now available citywide to every neighborhood in the city of Atlanta. Um, and that, you know, it's been a it's been a long, a, a short process, a long planning process and a short rollout. So, you know, it took us six months um, to roll out citywide, but we are now available. Did you all have any opposition to expanding this program? And by the way, for folks that don't know, Zone 5, and correct me if I'm wrong, Zone 5 is mostly downtown, correct, in, in parts right. of Georgia State University and all that. And then Zone 6, that kind of goes from parts of East Atlanta on up and through Midtown. That's right, exactly. So, and if you can imagine that geography, you know, it includes a lot of um, entertainment districts, residential and commercial districts, all sort of mixed together, which is where we see people, you know, calling for additional support because there's just more people, there's a higher density and there's just high, different kinds of uses in that area. So that's what we see. Um, I would say, you know, we received a lot of support um, in establishing the program. The city of Atlanta one um, department has just been an awesome partner. And we've also received support from the Atlanta Police Department to say, you know, instead of sort of moving away from the see something, say something, if you you know have any concern, call nine one one. Now you know we're hearing um, officers tell folks, "Hey, listen, if you have a quality of life concern, try three one one first, and if you need us, give us a call." So we've enjoyed, I think, a real. Um, but there's a lot of public will right now, so we've enjoyed a lot of support from folks saying, "Yeah, you know what? We think we could do something different." Um, and I think China could probably speak to this better, but we've also received really good feedback from callers. If you're just joining us, the voice you hear is Smokey Macias. She's the executive director of the PAD program, or what we call the Policing Alternatives and Diversion Initiative. And I'm also joined by China Corker, who's a referral coordinator with PAD. So, China, let's back up a little bit because you all, 911 uh, operators, are they sort of instructed to, you know, if they get a call that it doesn't seem like a, an emergency and someone saying, well, I just see an individual who might be experiencing uh, a mental episode or something like that, then they are encouraged to hang up and call 311? Or will that 911 dispatcher automatically connect them? How will this work? So we're not at the point where um, 911 would directly do like a warm transfer over to us, but I think just the general build around this um, this organization has made it to where folks are actually not calling 911 and they're going to 311 directly mm -hmm. and we're able to engage them in that way. So who responds? Is it a is it a different? Is it someone from from APD or someone? an expert or someone that works with within some of these advocacy organizations who responds to the situation? Yeah, I can tell you exactly how it, how it works. So it starts off with that call to 311. And um, once that call is made, um, 311 will determine, you know, what the general need is and if it is fit for PAD. Something that's not fit for PAD would probably be, you know, a situation where, you know, someone is harmed again they need an ems then mm -hmm. of course they go ahead and direct that call elsewhere but otherwise they'd send it to us and it comes to me and i go ahead and make that assessment and determine you know the best response time and what the best response will be and we send our team we call them our harm reduction team and they mm -hmm. are a two-person team um and they go out and they engage that individual directly and i think 
this can even speak to what the beauty of pad is you know we don't have these magic capes and these hidden secrets to go out and do this work we are people with some with just lived experience, some with certifications and others who just know that this is the work that needs to be done in the city. China, I can, I can imagine listeners saying, well, you probably all, maybe you all get a high volume of calls. Just one person right now is able to man that phone line and that's you. Do you have any assistance? Yeah, so there's actually two of us. Um, and now that we're citywide, you know, it definitely is we're seeing, you know, how this thing can really pick off. But I think the biggest part of it is, you know, knowing the resources that are available with the city and then also partnering with organizations that exist. Mm-hmm. Um, because we understand that this is not a, a pad fix all, that we need to work together, not only as a community um, of, of organizations, but as a community of people. So imploring and educating the community so that way they can kind of also assist us with tackling this this work. Through your lens, and, this, and neither one of you can answer this, when should folks, what, I guess, kind of guidelines can you give to listeners or anyone in determining whether or not they need to call 911 or 311? Yeah, I can speak to this. I think the biggest thing that I always tell people is that there's no such thing as like calling 311 and that being the wrong decision. Um, The 311 operators are equipped with the tools necessary to determine whether or not it's fit for pad, whether or not, you know, this is a more emergency call and EMS or, or 911 should be, you know, brought into the situation and they can do a warm transfer immediately. There's no need to hang up. There's no need to dial another number. They're able to make that assessment for the community member because of of course there's anxiety (laughs) and, you know, stress surrounding some of these situations. And we never want people to feel like um, we're expecting them to know everything about (laughs) extreme poverty, mental illness or substance use, or even what that looks like. Um, So giving them the opportunity to just call be able to to know that someone will get the call where it needs to go. How many calls do you average a day? And I'm sorry, go ahead, Director Macias. I'd like to add, if I could, you know, I think what's what's important about this resource is the distinction also between the the non-emergency nature of 311, right? People are familiar with calling 311 to find out when their court date is or to report a pothole. And so we're asking folks to use that same um, that same common sense that, mm-hmm. you know, if there's a medical emergency, if there is a situation where you are, you know, afraid for yourself or somebody else's physical safety. Those are 911 calls, mm-hmm. right? Um, but many of the concerns that people have, it's it's really a question of, hey, I, I know I need some help. I don't know what to do myself, but I know that this person needs help. Um, but we're still, it's a non-emergency line. So we just want to encourage people that, you know, when they have a, a concern related to well-being, that is not an all flat lights flashing um, type of issue. That's the time to call them. Chana, how many calls do you all average a day? I want to say we're, we're moving upwards of like 30 calls a day. Um, and it definitely varies by day. So mm-hmm. no day is the same. No volume is the same. But now that we're citywide, we're really seeing a pickup in, in people, um, you know, not only calling us, you know, for people that they see immediately, but also looking for resources um, for folks that they've encountered for years and just never knew that something like this could exist. And it's 24 hours? We're not 24 hours just yet. Um, since we work directly with 311's non-emergency line, we follow their hours. So we are uh, Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And a way to kind of work with that is we've actually listed a resource guide on our website that 
um, community members can actually go and look at. And it can even give them resources that they can use on the weekends and um, during the hours that, that we're not operating. I'm curious if someone initially refuses assistance when PAD, if you all arrive, uh, how do you handle that? Yeah, um, I think the biggest thing that we always want to recognize is that we are centered in harm reduction Mm -hmm. and centered in giving people their dignity and their respect and treating them, you know, like human beings. And a big part of that is not putting our expectations on other people. So if we engage someone and, you know, they're not necessarily ready that day, we do active re-engagement. So that means we will canvas the area, see if we can see them again, coordinate with community members of a time that that person typically frequents that area, um, and also just meet them where they are. So if they are saying that they don't want immediate shelter and they are, you know, under a bridge, we will go under that bridge and engage with them mm-hmm. um, and find out what it is that they do need and not put what we think they need on them. And who are your resource partners then that you all, and I imagine you may have a lot of them. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, we have such a large list, um, and I definitely let Moki speak to it more, but primarily w- what I've been trying to focus on is partnering with organizations who are looking to do similar work, um, but aren't quite sure how to get the resources out there. For example, we have lots of outreach centers in downtown Atlanta that people don't even know about. So if we're able to tell community members that a place like Safe House Outreach exists, and Mm -hmm. this is a place where people who are experiencing homelessness can go during the day to take classes or, um, you know, engage in case management or anything like that, people don't even know that it existed. So our biggest goal is connecting people to organizations that are already up and running, Mm -hmm. um, that are in their neighborhood, um, that they can actually find useful. And if this is a situation where someone is on public transportation, will you all still respond or do they need to call MARTA? They're on public transportation and they're experiencing a quality life concern or? Yes. So would they still call you all? Or I know MARTA has their own say something, see something, what have you, but it is a different, I mean, you all are working with the Atlanta Police Department, but when you're on MARTA property, you know, it's a, they, MARTA has their own police department, so I was curious mm-hmm. as to if someone does experience someone having, a, you know, a quality of life issue, would they still call you all, or would they have to go through MARTA? Rose, I'd love to share, if I can, one of our, um, the one of the calls that we received you know, sure. very early on when we started. Great. Um, so in January, when we launched uh, one of the first calls we received was actually from a, um, it was made placed on um, through the phone of the Amarta bus driver. And it was actually um, an older woman with her small dog who had been riding the buses all day. It was very cold out. She had nowhere to be. Um, and she was stranded in Atlanta, was hoping to get home to her family one state away. And the bus driver had you know, noticed that the woman was still on the bus it was the end of, of their shift. And um, so they called 311 because they had just heard about this program. Mm-hmm. Um, and our team was able to come out and you know meet the woman at, at the MARTA station, thank the bus driver for, um, for making that phone call with her. And then we were able to work with her to get back in touch with her family and get her transportation back home. So that for us, you know, was a, it was a great, um, a great collaboration with MARTA. Um, to be able to get somebody the resources that they needed. An example of instilling, instead of calling the police, which that MARTA uh, driver could have, 
but utilize the 311 number. Well, Director Macias, let me ask you this. Any idea, and maybe it's an, esti- an estimate of how many potential arrests have been diverted because of this program since it's been around? So in our first two years of operation, we diverted 150 people, which was you know, an indication of how, how slowly and carefully we're rolling out. Um, in, in this year alone, we have diverted 132 people working with the Atlanta Police Department. So that's when somebody would otherwise be booked into jail and the officers call us instead. And um, since January, as we've been rolling out the, the referral process, we've diverted, or excuse me, we referred, accepted referrals for um, 347 community calls coming through 311. So we're expecting within the year to respond to about 800 community referrals, um, upwards of 150 officer diversions. Um, and, you know, we're we're continuing to, as China said, we're continuing to get more calls every day mm-hmm. as people become aware of the program. So we're going to have to, um, you know, adjust those numbers accordingly and, and grow to meet the demand. As we wrap up, I want to get your final thoughts on how you all see PADS role as it fits in with long-term solutions of relieving. And we, we've had this conversation before, <laughs> Director Macias, uh, in helping be a solution in terms of Atlanta's homelessness substance abuse and, and, you know, instead of just temporary relief, but long-term relief, how do you see PAD being a big part of that? Absolutely. You know, I think what's really important here is that PAD is a pathway. It's not the answer, right? Um, We are one of what could be many different kinds of response teams that are able to connect people to resources instead of directing people to punishment and incarceration. Mm -hmm. I see PAD's role as um, a bit of a trailblazer, if you will, you know, to go out there and to learn um, and do and in an iterative process and show what it what could be possible. But ultimately, if we're going to really effectively address issues of homelessness in our community, the solution is housing, right? If we're going to address issues of mental health, the, the solution is actual, accessible, high quality um, mental health resources available to everybody. Same with substance use, right? We don't address substance use by punishing people for addiction. We address substance use by making um, detox and substance use treatment or management support available to every person in the city of Atlanta. So I think for us, you know, our work exposes on some level where we need more, where there's more work to do to make sure that we're building the kinds of systems that really serve people's needs instead of punishing them for the systems that exist. And China Corker, I'll give you the last word to on that. Yeah, I think my biggest thing, especially in my role, is just assisting people with not only, you know, our goal of reimagining public safety, but also rethinking how we see poverty and how we define it and what it looks like and kind of remembering to tell community members that they have the tools necessary, um, you know, to to help everyone in their community, either by calling us or um, by using some of the resources that we're able to, you know, educate them on. So I'm really, really happy um, that PAD's doing this work. And I think that we're you know, headed in the right direction. Well, and speaking of the right direction, you all anticipate to continued funding to see this through for a long time? Well, we certainly hope so. You know, I think I think it's important that public dollars support these sorts of um, new innovations in public solutions. Um, but certainly, you know, we we need the support from all all aspects of our um, government, private partners, and philanthropic partners. So, you know, we are continuing to try and build 
uh, model that is looked at across the country as a model. So we hope that we continue to get, get support um, for that work. Moki Macias, Executive Director, Policing Alternatives and Diversion Initiative, or PAD, and also China Corker, Referral Coordinator with PAD. Thank you both for taking the time. Thank you both for telling us what, how the city of Atlanta can all help in the initiative. Thank you all. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. Appreciate the time. Thank you. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. A big announcement today from the African-American Cultural Heritage Action Fund. If you're not familiar with it, well, keep listening. It's a program of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. And as the organization cites, it funds projects to preserve African-American landmarks and support the longevity of African-American historic sites. Brent Leggs is the executive director of the African-American Cultural Heritage Action Fund. And, of course, that means one thing. He joins me now. He's been doing a lot of interviews today, but that's okay because it's it's big news. Welcome to the program, Brent. Thank you for having me, Rose. Before we get to that big announcement, what's the origin story of the African-American Cultural Heritage Action Fund? We created the Action Fund in the aftermath of the tragic events in Charlottesville. And it was a moment where culture, heritage, and public spaces collided in the most negative and violent ways. And it was clear by the white nationalists in Charlottesville that they were advocating for a modern form of Jim Crow. And that expression didn't reflect our organizational values or our national values. So we wanted to demonstrate that preservation was a tool for equity and racial justice and thus, the Action Fund was born. And I'm curious, Brent, because prior to that, to your knowledge, were there any national initiatives solely devoted to preserving African-American or Black landmarks and historic sites? We know there are some organizations, but anything that was solely devoted to this specific community? You know, this is the first national preservation campaign. It's the largest fund in the history of the U.S preservation movement. We originally started out as a $25 million campaign to support the preservation of 150 Black history sites nationwide. And I'm pleased to say that in more than three and a half years, we've raised more than $50 million. And we are the leading platform for elevating the significance of Black culture in American history. And recently, you all received a large donation, correct? It just keeps pouring in, huh, Brent? It, it, it keeps pouring in and we hope hope that it continues to rain down, you know, good blessings and investment in the action fund. Yeah, twenty million dollars from McKinsey Scott and Dan Jewett. And that investment, along with our other partners, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the JPB Foundation and others, we now have a transformational investment to be able to direct back into historic black communities. And Brent, when you think about how many of the historic landmarks, historic sites might have just wasted away or or for, you know, because there was no attention paid to it. Do you think we've lost some of those in the past? Because we, of, yeah. 
So we have lost a significant number of black landmarks for various reasons, but I think the biggest reason is that our nation hasn't valued or respected the contributions of African Americans to our nation. And it's unfortunate that many African American landmarks are no longer standing on the American landscape. So this investment, this recognition is critically important to ensuring that both the stories are always here, mm-hmm. but also the physical evidence of our past. And Brent, before we talk about this latest round of projects that will benefit, how are the landmarks or historic sites chosen? Chosen? What, what's the criteria here to be eligible? So this year we received 519 proposals requesting nearly $53 million. And we have a seven-month review process, and we work with external reviewers like the National Museum of African History and Culture, Association for the Study of African American Life and History, uh, AAAM, Association of African American Museums, and others. And in March, we invited 50 proposals, and today we're making the big announcement. You went from 50 to 500. Y'all, y'all made some folks mad <laughs> or disappointed, <laughs> I should say. Tell a little me, bit of both. How do y'all work through that? 500 applications and you have to narrow it down to 50. How I can't even imagine how you do that. Well, it's a very strategic and thoughtful process. And we want to make sure that we are, are living our values to the places that we recognize and support. We have a, a commitment to uplifting the stories and places associated to black women. We're committed to supporting grassroots organizations that don't have access to, to resources and need this kind of support. And we also look for geographic and story type diversity. So it's exciting to be able to amplify these places and stories that have been overlooked. Hmm. Let's look at a, a few here in, in Georgia. And by the way, if, full disclosure, because there's a, a a landmark in my hometown of St. Louis, Missouri, which I'm, I'm very happy about. But let, let's focus on Georgia because I am in Georgia. <laughs> Folks send me emails. You always talk about St. Louis. But uh, one that really stood out to me, because it's right here, right here in our, in our neighborhood, which is the Prince Hall Masonic Lodge. And this was part of Dr. King, part of the Martin Luther King Jr. National Historic Park. So I'm I'm wondering if, if a landmark or a historic site is already connected to something that is already considered a, a landmark, does that sort of give it a, a an extra priority, so to speak? No, it doesn't. What no. was special about the, the lodge, there are so many Masonic lodges that are still standing in black communities across the country, mm-hmm. beautiful architectural buildings, but the Masonic Lodge organization, they're aging in place and having a difficulty to steward and to renovate these historic buildings. So this building in Atlanta has such a rich history, of course, associated to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and Dr. Mm-hmm. King, uh, formerly housed Madam Walker Beauty School, and also was once the space occupied by WERD, the first black owned mm-hmm. and programmed radio station. So we wanted to uplift this culture and to fund a preservation plan to ensure that the future renovation 
is done appropriately. And I want to head to the Savannah area for a moment because we've had these conversations on this program. Many people concerned about what would happen to Sapelo Island and, of course, the long threat, and as you all call it, the Gullah Geechee land and cultural heritage. This grant is desperately needed because it's going to help in terms of a legal defense fund for property owners and for those who are descendants. Descendants, correct? That is exactly it. And Gullah Heritage has been under threat by uh, new development projects, just a lack of, of appreciation of, of, of this cultural legacy. So we're delighted to invest in Sapelo Island Cultural and Revitalization Society to create a new emergency fund called the Gullah Geechee Legal Defense Fund to help the Gullah property owners retain ownership and fight for sales from rising taxes and speculative investors. Brent, what's the total in terms of funding for this announcement, this round right now that you're all making today? What's that total amount? So today we are announcing $3 million in 40 projects across the United States, and about 300000 of that is supporting five projects in Georgia. That is big, big news. And then, you know, someone, I just got an email that says, well, what about the other 450? Are they still eligible? How does that work? Do you have to keep reapplying for uh, to receive funding? Is that how it works? That's exactly it. We encourage all of the organizations to continue to apply. As you can imagine, the process is exceptionally competitive. And just to give you a statistic to help you understand the, the scale. Mm-hmm. So since we created this grant program in 2018, we've received almost 2,300 proposals requesting nearly $243 million. And thus far, we have invested 7.3 in in 105 projects. So it really speaks to the fact that African-American historic places are undervalued and underfunded. and, And funds like the Action Fund are critical to to reducing the inequitable investment in America's diverse cultural heritage. That's uh, where I want to go next with this conversation, because, as you know, we are in this space. We've been in this space since last year with all the events that took place where there is a focus on, and I've been using this word a lot, equity, you know, equity across the board in every sector that we're talking about. And I've heard people say, well, now is the moment, now is the time. But there's something bigger than just now being the moment, and it's, it's sustainability and being able to sustain these landmarks and historic sites what concerns do you have because even you know we we had a little fun with those 450 that's not to say that those 450 aren't aren't warranted they aren't merited because we want to keep those around too what concerns do you have uh in moving forward that we're able to at least preserve a a substantial number of these landmarks and historic sites you you hit it i i hope that these buzzwords around equity and racial justice, that it isn't just a short-term trend, that our nation is beginning to understand the connection between architecture and racial justice, that we understand the importance of being able to tell a fuller American story and to uplift both black struggle and achievement that's fundamental to understanding the nation and, and, and our democracy. My hope is that Philanthropists will continue to invest in the action fund at scale that allows us to go beyond the $243 million in requested proposals that we can create infrastructure like an endowment Mm -hmm. that sustains this work in perpetuity. Because 
anyone that's supported a preservation project knows how hard it is to preserve the physical history, but also to sustain an organization. And Brent, obviously, when I talk to folks like you, there's always a, a backstory or origin story or a passion story affiliated with why they're doing this work. I know you have one. I do. So I had this good fortune when I was, I had just completed an MBA, was searching for my professional identity and had a random conversation with the chair of the Historic Preservation Program at the University of Kentucky. And thankfully, I was invited to conduct a statewide inventory of historic Rosenwald schools in my home state of Kentucky. Mm. And that's a massive school building program envisioned by Booker T. Washington, funded by Julius Rosenwald. And they would help to fund the construction of over 5,000 schools in 15 Southern states. And when I learned about my family's personal connection to this social movement in the early 20th century to uplift Black children and Black education, I have d devoted my career to helping communities save and protect the places important in Black history. Well, that says it all. Brent Leggs is the executive director of the African American Cultural Heritage Action Fund. A big announcement today, more than $3 million going to how many projects, Brent? Forty. Forty projects, including a number right here in Atlanta, and we'll have a list on our site. Brent, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for what you're all doing and to preserve uh, what's very important to this nation. Thank you, Rose. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other program for that matter. You can always send me an email, as y'all love to do, rose at wabe.org, or hit me up on Twitter, as y'all love to do, wabe rose scott. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash closer look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m., as well as in our podcast. So you can subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. And speaking of podcasts, congratulations to my friend and colleague, Lisa Ram. She is the new host of Political Breakfast. You still hear the same conversations about very important issues. So make sure y'all check that out. Lisa does a great job with that. And she did not give me any cookies or donuts to say that. I said that on my own. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.